this is Victorian Scribblers, an informal exploration of the lives and work of lesser-known Victorian writers. I'm Dr. Courtney Floyd, a specialist in 19th century literature and print culture. And I'm Dr. Eleanor Dunmill, an expert in 19th century literary and publishing history. Listeners, hopefully our interview with Shahrazad Khan left you wanting to know more about Issa Blagden, and today we're going to be taking a quick look at her life and work. Most of the information we have about Blagden is very tentative. As we discussed with Shahrazad, Blagden seems to have been intentionally vague about her own past. A lot of what we do know comes from the friendship she formed with the creative Anglo-American group that lived in Florence throughout the mid to late 19th century, especially her friendship with Elizabeth Browning and Robert Browning. And she was also close with Theodosia Garrow Trollope and Thomas Adolphus Trollope, who writes about her in his memoir. Some things we do know, though. So most descriptions show her as short, with dark hair and eyes, and lots of energy. And I think if we want to apply some very modern terms to her, her love language was definitely acts of service. She nursed several of her friends through illness and extended this care to animals, especially dogs. But a neighbour of hers once remarked that, quote, a sketch of her character would be wanting in a leading trait if her bold assertion that the rights of dumb canines were left out. That's kind of an introductory, vague sketch, and we'll get into the details. Yes, yeah, so that makes me want to sort all of our, uh, all of our, the people we've covered into team dog or team cat um, or team none of the above. <laughs> yeah, or team both, but. Yeah, yeah. But I think like uh, Braddon was also team dog. Yeah. Yeah, it's just like there's several things of her like adopting dogs that she finds like either on the streets or just seem to be mis like poorly cared for. She's very firmly tuned mm. dog. That makes me like her even more. So as um, we chatted about with Shahrazad, um, there is kind of a big question mark when it comes to um, Blagden's parents. Um, so we know she was born on the 30th of June, either in 1816 or 1817, in the East Indies. Um, but to who exactly is a mystery that uh, is still unsolved. Um, so I'm going to quote a little bit from a book on the Browning's correspondence. Um, this is kind of the editorial background that's provided on some of the people the Browning's corresponded with, including Blagden. Um, so this is what that says about her parentage. So although we have not been able to identify her mother, we believe there is now little doubt as to the identity of Isa's father. Based on a body of circumstantial evidence, much of it involving Isa's relation to the Bracken and Alexander families, it can be argued that she was born in Calcutta, the natural daughter of Thomas Bracken, and a, this is an outdated term, Eurasian woman possibly named Blagden. The evidence is as follows. 1. A preponderance of eyewitness accounts that describe Isa's appearance as Eurasian. To cite one instance, Henry James, in recalling a visit to Belosquardo, wrote of meeting, quote, an eager little lady whose type gives, visibly enough, the hint of East Indian blood, end quote. And just side note here, I think that's something that has always creeped me out about the 19th century, where they will, like, just flippantly talk about types, like, 
Mm. Uh, yeah. Pseudoscience, yay. So to continue on, but the most telling piece of evidence supporting the paternity of Thomas Bracken is to be found in his will, dated 7 August 1847. In this document, Isa is the first named of two legatees, the other being Mary Rebecca, his daughter by his wife Rebecca, whom he married in Calcutta on the 1st of September 1818. The will states that out of the interest and dividends of Thomas Bracken's investments, which are to be held in trust, Isa is to be provided 150 pounds per annum as long as she lives. Uh, Mary Rebecca is to be bequeathed the remaining interests and dividends, but only after the said provision for Miss Isabella Blagden. Upon the former's marriage, she is to receive all of her father's estate, quote, saving and accepting a portion sufficient to defray the above annuity to Isa, end quote. So it's like they're not going to explicitly say this is why, but it's pretty strong evidence that there's a reason he's leaving £150, which is not like an insignificant sum to this woman. Right, right. We actually know very little of Issa's early life. So one thing I read said, basically, we have no concrete evidence of anything before 1849, pretty much. She's thought to have gone to Louisa Agassiz's Ladies' School near Regent's Park in London. The first known letter was written to our longtime enemy, Edward mm -hmm. Bulwer-Lytton, while attending that school. So in it, she asks him to read a play that she wrote at the age of 17, and to give him his due, he responded positively and seems to have really encouraged her. Her first published work was a poem for the Metropolitan titled, quote, What is Sir Lytton Bulwer's Zanoni? <laughs> I just put a note to self here saying I want to read an alternate version about his Zamboni, and that might be a fun thing for me to illustrate, so you never know. <laughs> but anyway, Bulwer-Lytton became a friend to Issa, and she was also close to his son Robert, who we'll talk about later. So Blagden first came to Florence in either 1849 or 1850. So this is where we start to have kind of a real paper trail, as such as it is, about her life. Mm -hmm. um, and according to the Browning correspondence, she traveled to Florence with Charlotte Agassiz in 1850. And together they took a short lease on a, a villa just outside the city uh, called the Villa Moutier. And this was on Bellosguardo Hill. She moved to a few different villas, um, but was almost always living on the hill, so just kind of in that same neighborhood. And um, Kate Field actually refers to her as Our Lady of Bellasquardo because she was such a mainstay on the hill. In the spring of 1850, she visited the Brownings at Casa Guidi, um, their home in the city that was well known as a place for the artistic group that congregated there. Elizabeth Barrett Browning's response to this visit was that she, quote, liked her little dog extremely and by no means disliked her, referring to Blagden herself. Um, so possibly another dog person. Yeah, yeah. Add it to the list. So she soon became very close friends with both Elizabeth Barrett Browning and Robert Browning, but especially with Elizabeth Barrett Browning. Um, and she communicated with her pretty regularly. But, you know, with kind of ebbs and flows that are natural to a very long-term correspondence when either of them was really particularly wrapped up in their work, such as when Elizabeth Barrett Browning was writing Aurora Lee. Yeah, it seems like one of those friendships where, like, you can go for a few months without talking or seeing each other, then it just picks right up, back up where it was. That characterizes most of my friendships. I describe myself as a feral friend because I, I very much care about all my friends, but I also, like, do drop off the radar frequently so at least i have 
Yeah. <laughs> it's a sign of a really strong friendship where you can just pick it up right where you left off. Yeah. A very forbearing friends, at least. <laughs> <laughs> um, around this time, she would have been also meeting the rest of the Anglo-American artistic set in Florence, including the Trollops, Alfred Aus- Austin, Harriet Hosmer, and Charlotte Cushman. In 1852, she seems to have returned to England for at least a short visit. And when she returned, she uh, lived with Louisa Alexander, who was suffering from some kind of illness that Blagden nursed her through. And they lived together until Alexander moved to India in June of 1855. Um, Issa moved to the Villa Bricchieri Colombi in 1856. I suspect that this is the house Thomas Trollope writes about in What I Remember when he says that, quote, her villa there commanded a lovely view over Florence and the valley of the Arno from the southern side, looking across it, therefore, to Fiesole, and its, or was it Fiesole? I don't know, and its villa and cypress covered slopes. From 1857 to 1858, she lived there with her cousin, Annette Bracken, who went with her when she visited friends in the city and joined her for a summer holiday in Bagni de Luca in August 1857. And similarly, the American journalist Kate Field stayed with Issa for several months after Kate's family, who she'd come to the city with, left and joined Issa on a trip to visit the Brownings in the countryside outside Siena in September 1859. 1857 was something of a standout year. So at the start of that year, Issa gave EBB, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, a gold signet ring, which had the Greek word for always or eternally engraved on it. Shortly after she arrived at the Wagner di Luca in 1857, Robert Lytton became dangerously ill with a fever. So remember, this is kind of before bacteriology. So fevers could be very, very, very bad (laughs) very quickly. Um, And Issa apparently decided that she was going to nurse him herself instead of calling in a professional nurse and doctor. Um, paying somebody to take care of him. So she decided, or so she began to nurse him sort of day and night. And when he was stable enough to move, brought him back to her own house to recuperate. So um, naturally, critics have speculated on this and suggest that Isa and Robert Lytton were romantically involved and that it was kind of like a love match that the friend group was really into, especially the Brownings, um, based mostly on the fact that Lytton's daughter said that uh, Robert had met a woman he loved but could not marry because of insurmountable barriers in Italy. Um, And the barriers seem to be tied to the age gap. So Isa is 15 years older than Robert Lytton, but also her race. Yeah, the age gap doesn't like hold much water for me because I'm like, well, yeah, I know that she's in a different like social position, but George Eliot got away with marrying John Cross, who's like a third of her age. So, I mean, they really don't care about that as much as position. The Victorians, like, I think you still have the same thing we have these days, where like an age gap where the woman is older is still more like suspect to society. But yeah, they really didn't care that much. Yeah. So another another reason for this um, possible insurmountable barrier could be the fact that Lisa may not have been into dudes romantically at all. Um, we we have some evidence that she was definitely into ladies, um, or some speculation, some strong speculation, I guess. But um, yeah. So whatever whatever the reason, Lytton 
left pretty abruptly once he was like physically able to leave at the end of 1857. And both Isa and Elizabeth Barrett Browning were super offended by this. Um, I mean, it is pretty rude and ungrateful as even if there is no kind of love interest happening, but especially if they were sort of like yeah. getting closer during this time. Yeah. And then I kind of like reading what they say afterwards, it seems like when someone's wronged you, whether that's a friend or a romantic interest, and then your best friend is kind of egging you on and being like, yeah, they, they suck for all of these reasons. They're like, mm-hmm. classic men are trash. Yeah. Because like E, I've just repeatedly referred to Elizabeth Browning as EBB because that's how I always think of her. Mm-hmm. So if that comes up in future, that's who we mean. But EBB wrote to Issa that, quote, It is natural that you should be indignant. To him, you have been only too tolerant, tender and self-forgetting. He follows your example in forgetting you too, acting even below the par of the ordinary male creature, a wretched, ungrateful. What shall I say? Better leave it and say nothing. Oh, that's a that's an eighteen fifty seven men are trash essentially. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there are also later letters where EBB kind of teases Issa about Robert. Like she'll write to her, her and be like, "Here's this character and how he describes this like female character. Is it you, Issa?" Which the Browning's correspondence people take as evidence that they weren't actually romantically involved because to quote them if they had been it's highly doubtful that ebb would have treated it so lightheartedly then i just this is kind of a throwaway comment but she moves around like she generally stays in italy but she also moves around a lot like she goes to austria at one point and she was in madrid from november 1858 to march 1859 Yeah. yeah that's an interesting thing it does seem like you know if she's not romantically attached, but he has become, that does a, a lot to explain him being like, well, I was rejected. I got to get out of here. But yes, I, I, I would like to believe that is the version of the story that happened. It's a nice like headcanon. Yeah. But, you know, but we'll probably never know. Oh, you get to hear my dog having a little tantrum in the background. Issa would have appreciated it, though. Yeah, yeah. Dogs have opinions, too. <laughs> so in 1860, Francis Power Cobb came to live in the Villa Bresheri, Colombia. In her autobiography, she wrote about the regular gatherings that Issa hosted at the villa. Uh, she had formal receptions on Saturdays and welcomed friends to the house almost every day. Uh, so to quote that autobiography... Um, quote, on the balcony and in our drawing rooms, assembled regularly every week and often on other occasions, an interesting and varied company. We were both of us poor, but in those days, poverty and Florence permitted us to rent 14 well-furnished rooms in a charming villa and to keep a maid and a manservant. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I'm trying to, like, read this in a straight voice, but <laughs> uh, yeah, that's poor. Okay. Also, we were able think- to... Yeah, sorry. No, I was just going to say, I think Francis Power Cobb is very self-aware as well, so... Yeah. And uh, she wants you to laugh at this or laugh with her. Yeah. Also, we were able to engage an open carriage with a pair of horses to do our shopping and pay our visits in Florence as often as we needed. And what does the reader think it cost us to live like this? Fire and candles and food for four included. In those Halicon days under the old regime, it was precisely 20 pounds a month. 
We divided everything exactly, and it never exceeded 10 pounds apiece. I know inflation's a thing, but wow. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, I need, people still do, like, vacation based on, like, the exchange rate in particular mm. countries, right? Like, yeah. So I guess that kind of makes sense, but still, just wow. And, like, I read some, somewhere else that they were paying way more for their villa than, like, Kasagiri was much cheaper than where they were staying. Wow. Just have a moment of silence for, like, cheap vacations. <laughs> vacations in general in this. Panic. I was going to say. Um, okay, yeah. So <laughs> back to our scripted programming. <laughs> um, so Francis Power Cobb lists the visitors to these um, parties, like general hangouts uh, as well as all of the details that they of, of things that they could do for 20 pounds a month. Um, so the most frequent visitors were, of course, the Brownings, but more often Robert than uh, EBB because EBB was in poor health. Um, and apparently Robert's just like, chill, I'm going to keep on having fun. <laughs> yeah, I think he kind of went on her behalf as well because yeah. she couldn't necessarily yeah, right. leave Kasugiri right. after him. There is kind of a social obligation to party. Yeah, and I guess when you don't feel like hosting, you still want to kind of feel like you're seeing your friends, even if it's just your husband going to see your friends and then repeating yeah. back. Um, and... Yeah, so um, so Cobb notes that uh, Robert and Isa were, quote, always wrangling in an affectionate way over some book or music. Uh, and then the next most frequent guest was Thomas Trollope. Um, there's another great story from Francis Power Cobb's autobiography that involves uh, Thomas Trollope turning up and demanding that Isa and Francis return to his house to meet someone who's staying with them. And so Isa goes, Francis stays behind, and who is there to meet uh, but George Eliot. So that's pretty exciting surprise meeting. It's kind of a flex on Thomas's part. Right. But He's just like, oh, come meet this mystery person. <laughs> I would probably do that too. I would have like no chill. I'd just be like, hey, I'm, I'm, I, yeah. Get, get Sue's at my house. Yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't we all, though? <laughs> Meanwhile, she's just, like, in the backyard, like, making notes on all of the weird plants that grow there and stuff. I mean, it's when she's writing Romola, so she's definitely just, like, absorbing in oh, yeah. Florence. Research trip. Yeah. Other members of the group who visited during this time were Harriet Beecher Stowe, Walter Savage Landor, and his Pomeranian fluffy little Pomeranian, um, Frederick Tennyson, so Alfred's brother, Mary Somerville, Nathaniel Hawthorne, Henry James, Hiram Powers, and Anna Jameson. Yeah, she, I think she mentions most Damn. of these people from Spalkov does, and it's very, like, name-dropping, but also, if you can, you would, so. Yeah, just imagine having Henry James and Nathaniel Hawthorne, like, in the same room. That's going to be, like, a creepy evening of of like storytelling right yes. like <laughs> that'd be the best ghost story session ever 
So it's around the time of her move to the Villa Bruschieri that Issa became serious about writing. She was primarily known as a novelist, but she did contribute articles and essays to periodicals, and she published a lot in Dickens' All the Year Round. And like on the subject of Dickens, I personally first became interested in her because she seems to be of the <clears throat> she seems to have been the main person in Florence gossiping about Dickens's affair with Ellen Turden. And it seems like she basically told everyone who would listen that Francis Ellen Charlotte's success could be put down to her sister's relationship with her editor, which like is I, I could go into this and it's not the subject of this episode. Like it's fair connections don't hurt, but it does if it's in a kind of way that people will gossip about Issa. But it's also understandable because Thomas's first wife, Theodosia, was one of her closest friends. So if your friend's husband remarries 18 months after your friend's death, you're going to not necessarily like the second wife. In 1861, Elizabeth Barrett Browning died. And Issa started planning to have a tablet placed in her memory at uh, the Church of Santa Croce. And she wanted to petition the king for permission to put a memorial to a Protestant in a Catholic church, just to put that in perspective a little bit. Um, Robert Browning objected to this plan as, quote, totally repugnant to my feelings, end quote. And so Isa pivoted and changed her plan so that instead a tablet would be placed above the entrance to Casa Giri, which was approved. Yeah, by both Robert and the people of Florence, I guess. Good. Yeah, everyone's happier with that plan. And it's way less off the wall. <laughs> Um, yeah, so then after that, Isa leaves Italy with Robert Browning and his son, Penn, and they travel to France, and then Isa goes on to London on her own and stays with a friend in Westburn Green, not far from Paddington and Kensington. And so at this point, Isa and Robert start writing to each other uh, at least once a month. She writes to him on the 12th of the month, and he sends his reply on the 19th pretty much like clockwork, it seems. Um, going back to a cold climate after living in a warmer climate for so long seems to have not been great for Isa. So even though she was planning to stay in London, uh, she returns to Italy in the summer of 1862. I can't really blame her for that. I'm like, if I had to choose between the weather in Florence and London... As much as I love London, like if it was purely weather-based, it would be Florence every time. But yeah, in April 1865, she lost another of her closest friends, Theodosia Garrow Trollope. And once again, Issa nursed her through her final illness and had Biche, the Trollope's daughter, to stay with her in the immediate aftermath of Theodosia's death. She then left Florence for Venice, where she spent the month of May recuperating and kind of recovering from the trauma of like nursing another friend through her final illness. When she returned to Florence, she moved again to Villa Isetta, which was not on the Bella Squadra Hill. She stayed there for about a year and then moved back to the hill where she spent much of her time in Florence. So we don't have a lot of information except for like the dates of publications between this and her death. Um, so here we'll talk a little bit about her death and then transition into talking a little bit more about her writing. Issa Blagden died in the Villa Castellani, Piazza di Bellasquardo, Florence, on the 20th of January, 1873. And she was buried eight days later near her friend, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, 
in the Protestant cemetery. She's close to Theodosia as well. Just a note. So Thomas Trollope writes that her death was, quote, an especially sad one because I thought and think that she need not have died, end quote. Um, so it seems like she was reluctant to have a doctor when she got sick. And even though she had a lot of friends living nearby, um, she was basically alone except for her servants and um, a doctor who she eventually sent for. That seems like a little bit too late. But Thomas, I think, is making this comment kind of out of like guilt and grief and not maybe out of like reality um, because he yeah. seems to think that if he were only there or Robert Browning had been there, they would have been able to get her help sooner and prevent this. But she did have a doctor on the second day of her illness, apparently. Um, so that sounds like probably by the time she realized she was sick enough to need a doctor, it was probably already too late too. Yeah, I think because he and Robert Browning were both like not in Florence at the time. And he thinks that if she'd had a doctor on the very first day she became sick, she would have survived. But then he's assuming that he would have been able to see her on the first day and he would have been able to like force her to see a doctor. Like, this is completely conjecture, but she seems to have not really trusted the medical professions that much because like, if we remember to Robert Lytton's illness, she didn't call in the nurse until, I don't know if she called a nurse in at all, but she definitely refused to for a while. I mean, that's pretty fair in the 19th century in yeah. general that doctors often did way, way more harm than they did good. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's tragic, but it is very much true that we don't know how much they could have done. So let's talk a little bit about Issa's publishing. She was more known as a novelist, but like many novelists, um, she seems to have started her writing career with poetry, maybe as a younger person, um, writing especially mm -hmm. um, tributary poems to people like uh, Edward Bowler Lytton. Uh, um, and throughout her life, she almost always published under a pseudonym. In Except for like a couple of, it seems to be accidental cases. So there was a novel in 1861 called Agnes Tremorn that she requested be published under her usual pseudonym, but which was actually published under her real name. Um, and the other exception is a poem called Voices, Youth, Love, and Death, which was published in Victoria Regia in 1861. And that one was, I think, possibly intentionally published under her real name. Uh, other publications tend to have been under the pseudonym IB or Ivory Barrel, which still has her initials, but um, yeah, yeah. It's kind of smart to just keep the initials the same and then yeah, I, I'm really interested in this ivory barrel because it does seem to be kind of potentially a reference to her mm. birthplace and her background, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, ivory is a really interesting choice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was like Googling around barrel too, but I didn't find out much about that or like where it was most commonly found or anything in the 19th century. So I don't know, but the ivory is an interesting one for sure. Mm -hmm. Supposedly, Elizabeth Barrett Browning encouraged her to write novels. So the first, as Courtney mentioned, Agnes Tremorne appeared in 1861, or just Agnes Tremorne, I'm not sure. 
Um, her four subsequent novels were The Cost of a Secret in 1863, The Woman I Loved and The Woman Who Loved Me, which we talked about with Scheherazade, which was released serially in 1862 and as a book in 1865. It was followed by Nora and Archibald Lee in 1867, and finally The Crown of A Life in 1869. So um, supposedly Elizabeth Bear Browning encouraged her to write novels. We don't know because actually Issa's uh, Issa's side of their long correspondence is really just not existent anymore. And so a lot of what we know about her life is through the perspective of her friends. So it's hard to say mm-hmm. if maybe Issa had the idea first and Elizabeth Barrett Browning was like, oh, you should do it. Or if Elizabeth Barrett Browning was like, hey, have you ever thought about writing novels? And Issa was like, no, but let me try. So, uh, you know, yeah. And I think the like the term encouraged can be interpreted in a few ways, right? Like, mm-hmm. like you just said, there are those two different options. And I think, I think it's like three of her letters to EBB survive and the rest are just lost, which is yeah, kind of standard. Yeah. I think we talked about that with Scheherazade too, that like that's mm-hmm. part of what has fueled speculation about like why have they been lost, especially if she's a treasured friend? Was it like one of these very Victorian, oh, we're going to actually like edit the historical record by destroying these things? Or were they actually legitimately lost? We don't, we don't know. Or just purposely like not, like it takes a lot of time and effort to preserve something. So were they right. just not preserved? Right. Which you'd think they might be because they're to EBB. So they're to one of the mm-hmm. like, this is like a delicious quote from Francis Powercott that I wanted to include, but at one point she's like, yeah, I didn't really ever think that Robert Browning was that great when I knew him. I like, I had no idea that he was as well-known as his wife, even. <laughs> and it's really nice that she's like, for once, she's like, his wife was really, Elizabeth Barrett Browning was really well-known, but I didn't know Robert Browning was that interesting. He seems to have been pretty shy, like just side note, because I was doing some research on like use of the phonograph, right? And like there's these two things of like Alfred Lord Tennyson got a phonograph and he was like, yes, I'm going to record this every day. And Robert Browning is like, there's like a record of him reading one of his poems for a phonograph, but he's like so nervous about it. Like, yeah. And I, I, I wonder if that kind of extends to his social life a little bit too, you know, just like not being kind of a uh, social performer, if that makes yeah, sense. that makes sense. But yeah, so for whatever reason, it's lost. And sometimes that's because we don't value the person who writes them. Yeah. So um, Blagden's manuscript poems were collected posthumously by Linda Mazzini, and they were published in 1873 with a memoir by Alfred Austin, um, which really annoyed Robert Browning um, because Browning really hated Austin. Um, and a volume of Robert Browning's letters to Blagden entitled Dearest Isa was published in 1990. So you can do a little bit of digging and um, find that. But yeah, I think like the prevailing mood with this is we know so little about her and what we know is because kind of like what I was just saying with the letters, like what we know has been preserved because we're interested in the people that she was interacting with. Whereas Kate yeah. Field calling her, what is it, like the great lady of Bellasguardo? At the time, she was absolutely central to this circle. And now we only know her because she was friends with EBB and Theodore Shigaro, who herself is not that well known. Yeah. It's just sobering how that happens. So I do have a poem to share with you. Um, and this poem is actually often kind of part of speculation about Isa Blagden's sexual orientation. 
Um, It's called First Friend. The sharp regret, the gnawing pain, the dumb and helpless sense of grief, the struggle which we feel in vain, the tears which never give relief, though they flow, the restless longing and the fear, desiring most what most we dread, the frenzied cries when none can hear, wild tossings on a sleepless bed, all these I know. But they are past, you see me stand free from regret, from fear, surprise. My hand lies calmly in her hand, I falter not in my replies, and stern and cold my eyes meet hers. Their fatal blue has no more power to search me through, the tale is told. I can withstand her smile, my heart, which leapt if she but shone afar, sees her without a thrill or start, unmoved as frozen billows are, when calm they lie, all stark and hushed beneath the moon, no longer swayed by her soft breath, locked in a dark, impassive swoon. The rolling tides are still as death, I hear her sigh, and no wild tumult of the soul does cast me prostrate at her feet. No spirit tempests o'er me roll, and no delirium, sad yet sweet, now holds me fast. The joy, the passion, and the fever are dead forever and forever. The dream is past. I feel as feels a shipwrecked man, swimming the waves for dear life's sake. I yield up all, the ocean can, each joy, each costly treasure take, so life be one. I yield my Tyrian merchandise, those argosies of hope which give life to man's life, and I arise naked, forlorn, but yet I live, and shall live one. You see, my friend, I have overcome. There is no weakness in this breast. Vainly you'd stir the void for some old feeling which it once possessed. And yet, and yet, must I not see her once again, if but to prove by cold disdain that I forget, that I have read her through and through, indifferent to those queenly charms, that I resist and triumph too, ah, but to hold her in these arms and clasp her close, and by the strong magnetic force of love, full-statured and complete, draw her to me as to its source, the sun is drawn volcanic heat. To gaze on those wild, mystic, and unfathomed eyes, the witchery of that changeful mouth, the blonde hair falling angel-wise, the tender bloom, the glorious youth. As when, oh God, I was the fond and foolish slave who perished by her cruel scorn, whose heart found in her heart its grave, on whose crushed faith and love upborn she lightly trod, to reach some other heart less sad, with more of sunshine, less of cloud. Some love, I know, and yet are glad, some wear its purple, some its shroud, but I will prove by all this bitter sense of wrong, by this deep hatred fierce and strong, second friend that still you love. Yeah, I don't know. I think I inaudibly went, it was inaudible that I went, ooh, would you finished. Yeah. I don't always know how to respond to poetry other than that. Yeah, yeah, I know, like it's, I could see where people would, um, you know, kind of incorporate this into, like, theories about her attachment to a woman. Mm -hmm. um, again, that's kind of like the whole slippery slope of using a written piece of fiction or poetry to, like, inform the autobiography. But at the same time, there are some things about this that are kind of really mm -hmm. uh, non-normative romance, um, you know? And the, the other thing that I've seen... Like it all comes together to build a picture. Like the other thing that I've seen used to argue that is these like long periods of time where she lived with other women mm -hmm. and like took them on holidays with her and 
yeah, you do that with friends, but not necessarily just with friends. Gal pals. Okay, so I think that's where we'll end our coverage of Isa Blagden. You can look forward to uh, an episode on Mary Church Drill slash Euphemia Kirk in April. So thank you for listening. Victorian Scribblers is researched, written, and produced by me, Courtney Floyd, and my co-host, Eleanor Dumbbell. The podcast is made possible by support from listeners like you. If you liked what you heard today and want to help ensure more fabulous content, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes, spread the word on social media, and, if you can, visit www.victorianscribblers.com support us to donate. All of the music and sound effects for this podcast are available under Creative Commons Attribution Licenses. Our theme is Joseph Miroslav Weber's String Quartet, number two in B minor, performed by Steve's Bedroom Band. 